The complicated world of convenience euthanasia. Recent stories in the news have highlighted the pitfalls and perils of euthanasia. This week, we discuss what you need to know. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And arguably, nothing is tougher than euthanizing a pet patient. And recent news stories have brought to light once again just how complex and complicated this topic is. But before we jump into that this week, as always, I am your co-host, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. Recently in Richmond, Virginia, uh, a dog owner was found dead at their home. And the officials came and got the dog, and they took it to a shelter, and then they wound up uh, keeping it for a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, through the legal system, the will is being whatever all the legal things that are involved with the will, right? So they're verifying it, validating, and, and executing it. So suddenly, at this shelter where the dog has been for two weeks after the owner's sudden death, uh, a representative comes and says, we are taking the dog and uh, we are going to abide by the owner's wishes to have it euthanized and buried with her. And apparently the shelter said, hey, no, we'll take care of the dog. Don't do this. But sadly, the dog was euthanized and uh, apparently buried with the owner. Becky, this one just hit me all kind of ways wrong. Yeah, I don't want to, like, be shaming here. Like, I have never had to face this situation myself, but as a veterinary professional in this particular circumstance, but my first question to you was, what kind of veterinarian does right. that? And right. then my second question to you is, or or was, are they legally obligated to do this? Like if you come in to me as a veterinary professional and to you as a veterinarian with a court document that says this animal is to be euthanized and buried, right. are we under legal, legal obligation to do that? What is that legally? What does that look like now? We're not lawyers, but fill me in. Right. Well, actually, the Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, got involved with this case, and they were really hot about it. And I totally agree and yeah. support there. They, they basically said uh, two things failed. Number one, the executor of the will should have asked a judge to rule because in states that don't outright ban this type of practice, because there are states that say, no, you can't have your dog euthanize or your cat or whatever after you die, just have it buried with you. But in states that don't, like Virginia, then a judge could rule. And in this case, according to the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the judge would have most likely said, hey, you can put this dog up for adoption. And so, you know, I, I, I agree. First of all, the legalities of it, it sounds like it is legal. Uh, second of all, it sounds like the executor of the estate should have asked a judge for guidance, you know, just to say, hey, is this right or wrong? I still can't believe somebody was out there willing to put this dog to, to death, you know, over over this. And then the third and, and the part that, of course, hits me personally is that there was a veterinarian willing to comply. And, and, and Becky, that's the part of the ethics here that really, really <sighs> no. I struggle with. Well, and I guess that's kind of the same thing is. What if they felt like they had to? What if they felt like they didn't have a choice? What if they were intimidated into this with court documents and felt like they had right. to? My concern is that somewhere out there, there's a whole veterinary team who has this weighing on them. And since we are in the middle of some real serious times when it comes to depression, burnout and suicide in our industry, I feel like this is absolutely something that can contribute to a big black hole in someone's spirit if they really felt like they shouldn't be doing this and did this. I, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty heartbroken for 
this team if it was something they didn't feel like they had to do. Well, and Becky, I'm also heartbroken for the profession because the story spun yeah. out of control. I mean, if you Google this story, you instantly are, are interlinked with this this theme of a vet killed this person's dog so it could be buried, right? So it's a black eye on the profession. Yeah. And, and you're right. I'm guessing, Becky, that some lawyer came in with documents saying, you know, you have to do this, and they found a vet willing. Uh, having said that, you know, if you're listening today, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would want a judge to force me to do that. In fact, I don't think there's any legal basis to force you to euthanize an otherwise healthy dog. I mean, I I think we can deny that service. So Yeah, uh, I agree. But then, you know, I know in a lot of states and in our state of North Carolina as well, dogs are considered property. property right. And so is this something that the legal system is backing up right now that these sentient beings are property. So maybe, you know, the legal system was in support of this. I, I Do we know 100% it didn't get run by any legal checks or balances or judges? I don't know. But this is a scary story to me because where do we go from here? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Um, and, and again, I have to be frustrated that the veterinary community is not leading the charge on protecting and changing, we're hearing it from the business and the legal sides. Right. And this is where, again, why we bring attention to these types of stories uh, and issues within the profession, because we hope to spark some change out there. And honestly, if you're listening today and this is something that hits you the wrong way as it hit me, please reach out to us. You know, certainly either through social media or direct message, whatever, email, because uh, I'd like to try to start to build a coalition and see what we can do. Well, and, and then I guess that brings me kind of to the other side of this is then what? OK, this right. dog gets brought in. In this particular case, it sounded like the shelter was fully willing to keep the dog, adopt the dog out, make sure that this life was facilitated to continue and to continue in a healthy, happy way. But as veterinary professionals, I mean, I've definitely been working in the clinic when the, you know, the big fat tomboy comes in and he's been peeing and spraying all over the house and they right. feel like they've tried everything and they're at their wits end. And, you know, it's it's hard to say, sure, let me take your 12 year old spraying male cat and find something better for him. So does this ultimately end up in us being overwhelmed and taking on animals that then live in the hospital or come live with us? Or, you know, what is the next then when this happens to you in the clinic? I mean, have you had this experience? I, I, I have. And before I kind of share some of my personal experiences, this is also where we need more oversight and guidance from people like the AVMA and others. And I know that there are some loose guidelines out there, but perhaps we should be looking for more specific guidelines. And again, guidelines aren't rules or regulations or laws, but they do help guide society in saying, this is right or this is not so right. And so, you know, it helps us. It's no different than making medical protocols, certain things, you know, mandatory or, or best practices or standards of care. I really think we we should be more closely examining this because, Becky, you, you brought up something really important that I, I want to repeat. And that is, what is the impact of, of these stories and these experiences on the burnout rates, the compassion fatigue, just the overall feeling of frustration? That's really, you know, let's face it, Becky, we, people come to us and they say, you know, my dog or cat has this condition and I'm just, I've had enough and it's time to put it down. And that weighs on our souls. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you, you feel like there's something else you can do. I mean, I, I can think of handfuls of experiences where I've I've bargained with clients and, right. you know, um, I can think of one in particular instance where a big, beautiful orange cat was brought into the emergency room with a broken femur 
and they were electing euthanasia. I mean, they were he was like a year old. They were going to literally put him down. And and I'm looking at them like, you've got to be kidding. We can amputate pretty affordably, almost as affordably as you can euthanize and cremate this kid. You know, like, what are you talking about? And their option was to euthanize. And then, of course, guess guess what happened? He gets signed over to me. I, right. I find a local veterinarian who's willing to to do the work, who wants some orthopedic practice. I pay that bill. And then, you know, he happened to turn out to be a wonderful hospital cat and he's got a great life and a lot of love. And he's, you know, comforts animals when they're coming out of surgery. He works around the hospital. He makes everyone's day bright. He almost went to heaven because right. of a broken femur. But Becky, this is why so many of us veterinary professionals have a house full of these little exactly. orphans. <laughs> exactly. Be- because we can't say no, and it is a life that we value highly, and so we figure out a way. The bad news is, A, I do think this wears on our soul, but B, it wears on our finances, because like you taking over ownership of this this cat cost you like real money. Oh, yeah, and, and, and so even if you got a discount from, you know, one of your veterinarians, which of course we always do this almost at as dirt cheap and cost as we cost. can. But the point is it still costs money and that's, it's tough. Sure, and to that point, that veterinarian didn't charge for his time, right? Right, right. So, uh, you know, shout out to Dr. Anderson at Paws and Claws there in Wilmington. <laughs> right. He he can get a shout out because he didn't get paid for his time. And and so he gave that up. Right, so we're and, getting charged twice right, here. We're getting right. charged financially and emotionally. Emotionally, so, exactly. He's so, time away from his family, his, his right. stress and investment in this patient as well, right? Because now the whole hospital is invested in this poor kitty who was abandoned, and that's on his shoulders to get him through, get him better. And 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 there is some real implications to that, especially when you have a whole crew looking at you with big, you know, doe eyes saying, can we keep him, dad? <laughs> right, right. And so so here's where, uh, before we get into some of our other experiences and, and solutions, this is where the, the problem gets very complicated quickly. So let's just take for a second that we have firm guidelines, so like somehow magical future, you know, we've got rules and regulations, even laws perhaps that say, hey, these are the times when it's appropriate youth eyes and, and these are not. Okay, we got that established. Now, a cat or dog comes in and it doesn't meet these criteria for euthanasia, and yet the owner then says, I can't treat it. <laughs> you know, we're right back to square right. one with how do you pay for this care? And this is where, again, the veterinary medical system completely breaks from the human medical care system because let's face it, we have indigent care. Our taxpayer dollars go for this, but on the vet side, we continue to subsidize this. So, Becky, again, you know, when people are listening to this podcast, you know, what are the solutions? I mean, it sounds to me like the only solution that we so far have come up with is to raise money to put them in funds and then you go and beg okay so good point there are um i know of documents that are available that have you know lists of here are the organizations that can help with emergency veterinary bills they are out there there's nonprofits willing to help and and find them in the areas where these types of things are so for example and we've talked with the tripods and rue foundation who always come up with money to help with you know lump checks and cancer treatments whenever that's a possibility but they're also out there for emergencies for example here in wilmington i know there are good SAM funds at a lot of the clinics. So um, I think for your clinic to make it known that you have a good SAM account and to help raise funds for those good SAMs, it gives a little bit of power to the practice to say, we can treat this. We also have some veterinary clinics who have their own nonprofits as branches of their clinics that have some rescue funds and rescuability built in. And they have a board and the board makes decisions on yes and no so that it doesn't come down to the veterinarian 
in the moment saying yes or no, and they get some backing and some support when they say no, it doesn't feel like it's coming from them and they're condemning this animal to death or non-care. But I think having good relationships with these types of practices in your um community and even helping build them within your clinic can help offset some of that financial burden and the guilt burden because you are prepared for these. Right. So if you're listening today, I'd love to hear your stories. Like, have you been confronted by a case similar to this Richmond, Virginia case where somebody came in and said, hey, you know, this this somebody died and this was their dog and I don't know what to do with it um, because I have. And, uh, you know, I, I may have shared this on the podcast before, Becky, but you certainly know the story. One of uh, our first dogs kind of as adults, my wife and I, when we first started our clinic, and remember, we started our our first seaside animal care, you know, 14 months after graduation. So that was, you know, we were kind of (laughs) new. We were just out of college. And uh, uh, one of my clients had a a Pekingese, he claimed. I really believe it was a Japanese chin, but who's counting? Uh, But anyway, so this was a great client of mine. And Willie certainly had his own little issues. And one of the primary was inappropriate elimination. But, you know, we were working through it and everything was going fine. Anyway, the owner went in for a routine procedure and died, died suddenly. And now the family is faced similar to this Richmond uh, situation. And they say, hey, you know, nobody can take this dog. And, you know, even Willie kind of has tinkle problems in the house. So we don't want the dog. I don't know what to do with him. So they came in one day um, shortly after he had pa- the owner had passed and said, look, you know, uh, we're going to have to put Willie down. And of course, as a young veterinarian, you're like, wait, what? Willie, I've known Willie, you know, I've been working with this dog for the past year and a half. Uh, He's a great dog. At that time, Willie was not even three. So you're like, no, I, I can't do that. And they became very, very upset. Now, I went at that time into the default mechanism that most of us do. And that is, fine, I will take Willie, you know, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is how we got Willie. And yeah. Willie turned out to be just a fabulous dog. I mean, uh, to this day, my wife, Laura, makes a great impression because as we know, Pekingese have a very distinctive voice, you know, and, and so Laura is always doing Willie impressions uh, to this day. <laughs> but, um, but he turned out to be a great dog, right? But that's how our, and, and look, I, I don't know how many cats I've ended up in the same situation, you know, I mean, yes. we've, all, we've all been there. Uh, and certainly even a dog after Willie, we got into a similar situation where the owner just couldn't afford the treatment. And I was like, fine, I love this dog. I'm going to take care of it. And this gets us back to that, you know, how do you deal with it in the moment? Uh, I've also probably discussed on this podcast, I had an owner who uh, pulled a gun on me when I refused to euthanize his dog. I think that you might recall that story, Becky, where yeah. an owner was passing through. He said he was going to relocate to Alaska, couldn't take his older dog with him, because the dog was becoming arthritic. Uh, he said, you're gonna have to put him down, doc. And I was like, I can't do that. He could yeah. be treated. In fact, just try an inset. You know, honestly, just during your travels out to Alaska, just try an inset and see what happens. And if he's not any better, at least you know you tried and you can put him down. And of course, the guy pulled a gun on me and that, that was a fun, fun situation. Um, and nobody got shot, uh, at least uh, not that I know of. Spoiler I didn't get shot. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But so, so how do you deal with that in the moment? I mean, Becky, what are some of your experiences with those types of highly emotionally charged situations? Oh, I mean, you know, again, one of them I already recanted lives at a hospital in town mm-hmm. because he couldn't. I, I've owned several of those dogs. And, right. you know, one time I even um, watched a guy abandon his dog in the lobby of the emergency room. And he literally just dropped the leash and walk out and left the dog there because wow. we refused to um, 
to take the dog to right. be signed over. Um, it just wasn't something we could do. He wanted somebody there to just take it and um, otherwise put it down. And we just, it just wasn't right. And, and, and he, and he abandoned the dog there. And that was, that was probably one of the hardest moments for me in veterinary medicine was watching right. his owner leave. Right. Well, and I'll tell you, so this is, if you really want to unpeel the onion of complexity here, it kind of boils down like this. Our, we are so confused by the public right now. And if you agree, please hit us up on social media. We are so confused by the public because basically we have this one cohort of pet owners who dress their dog up in solid gold collars carry them around in a baby carriage and they spend, you know, $200 for a week of food, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it's right. it's their kid and heaven forbid you ever do anything remotely incorrect or could be perceived as incorrect because all holy hell is coming down on you. Sorry, excuse my language, but yeah. you get this the picture. And then you've got this other cohort who's like, it's just a dog and we don't know what to do with it because then we're trying to make these judgment calls within the moment to say, wait, where are you on that spectrum of loving your pet? Is it property or is it your child? That's right. And to your point, you know, a lot of times it's, it, it's what we get. It's it, it, beyond even illnesses. He doesn't hunt. He hasn't, right. you know, gotten any game. He's not properly protecting the herd, whatever it is, because they are a working dog. And then and I know our listeners can relate. And I'm sorry, because I know this is probably triggery for a lot of us. It's if you don't do it, I will. Right. And so right. then we are faced with the fear of. They have literally looked at us in their face and if they're willing to pull a gun on you. We absolutely know they'll pull it on their dog. And are we now then condemning this dog to a, a possible non-death, right? That that this goes wrong or that this is how they die. I mean, I don't know the answer here, but I know this is a huge problem. And, and again, to circle back, I think you're right. We need the protocols. We need the laws. And, and more than anything, we have to unite and band together um, and know that strength is there in numbers that says this isn't okay. And to that population of pet owners who feels like this, okay, you're not going to get this from from us. I, I don't know. How, I don't know that answer. Right. Now, let's spin it slightly. So let's let's now because we don't we can't solve this. And this Richmond case is breaking my heart and depressing yeah. me. And I apologize, listeners. But, you know, these are real tough topics that we have to tackle. But let's now spin it slightly, Becky, when it's appropriate. So now I've got the dog who's been battling cancer or maybe crippling arthritis and we've done everything possible and it is legitimately time right because there are plenty of those cases i mean that is one of in my opinion one of the beauties of veterinary medicine that i can alleviate and relieve that suffering when it is appropriate right so but the appropriate is the important part but now becky are we creating barriers in our profession where people are starting to go you know i don't even know that i i can afford to have my dog or cat euthanized well, right. And, and you know, this whole veterinary care gap is part of what we've been talking about recently, right? That there is a huge gap because because to your point, we have a gap in ownership, right? We've got these, right. I dress my dog up, it gets whatever it wants, it, it eats better than my family and my children, and it has a better education. And then this group <laughs> of people who just kind of are like, whatever, whatever, it's a dog, who cares? Um, with that comes the care gap. There's the people who are able and willing to provide whatever we need to do veterinary um professionally and, and, and medically and it's amazing and then there's this gap of people who either cannot or will not 
And what we're finding is euthanasia, I, there's nothing more heartbreaking than someone coming into the emergency hospital or the clinic and saying, how much is this going to cost? And then having to downgrade their service, not get back their remains because they can't right, afford it. That's right. terrifying. Yeah, that's a really good point there. In fact, one that I wasn't quite anticipating, Becky, and you're right. So now there's this entire other aspect of it. Okay, so we downgrade the actual euthanasia experience. Uh, right. and, 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 you know, I, I used to, I struggle with this. In fact, if you go back and look at some of my early writings in, in, in the 90s, uh, I struggle with this in, in a lot of my content. And it would go like this, the story would be like, okay, I really believe that euthanasia, the charging of euthanasia in the veterinary profession should kind of look pretty extreme. It should A, either be the most expensive procedure that we have in our arsenal. Okay. Meaning that it was such a last resort that it would like, you know, you would try everything else because euthanasia costs so darn much, right? So you would, chemotherapy was cheaper than euthanasia, right? So that's one philosophical stand on how you should charge for euthanasia. And then I would argue on the other side of this, euthanasia should be free. You know, it should not be, should not charge for this procedure because at the end of the day, philosophically and ethically, we're saying, you know, this is the kindest act that we can do and therefore it should not be charged. Now, obviously I'm, I'm expecting you to cover your costs, but I think if you understand that ethical philosophical spectrum that I was trying to paint now, obviously the truth is often in the center, but Becky, it seems like we really are playing to these edges these days. Like it's either an exorbitant procedure that's really complicated and maybe beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It may be exactly what some people want, but it's so pricey or it now is just like, uh, here's a black bag. Here's your dog. (laughs) Right. You can take him with you and figure out what to do or (laughs) will community cremate him. And again, and and I'm not trying to harp on it. Sorry, guys. But is that leading to our burnout? I know as Mm -hmm. a support staff member, 98% of the time, I'm the one in there having the conversation about what this is going to cost and what we can do to accommodate and knowing how I would feel, what I would want. And, and, you know, I've even gone to people in cremation services and said to them, like, what you do is so important. Getting back remains, getting paw prints, having clips of hair, having pieces of rosemary, having thoughtful poems. It brings peace at such a hard time. And you guys make that package really beautiful. What are we doing to interfere with that in the veterinary practice? And I kind of love what you said about making the treatment more affordable than the other options if they if they shouldn't be that way but again i think this kind of goes back to how how much in the veterinary profession we have an obligation to prepare our clients for the life of their pet and how poorly we're doing at that i mean i i can't see any reason that we can't have these wellness packages that include this type of service that when the end of life comes Everything you've spent here in the clinic over this time period has been included in this package in this way that we can do this and money is taken care of. So we're financially okay as a clinic for the services we have to provide. But in this moment, you don't have to do this. We can do better. Dang, Becky, I think you just nailed something there. So if you're working at Banfield right now, (laughs) you know, this is I, I completely agree. Becky, I don't know that that is included any way, shape or form. I mean, and again, again, I'm not an expert on Banfield's policies and procedures. I don't have any of their plans or whatever. But regardless, I'd like to know. So if you work for a Banfield hospital, do you guys include the euthanasia experience uh, for those people that have those plans or whatever? Uh, And if not, why not? And if not, 
how do we get that accomplished? Because I think that's a nice precedent because, you know, that really gets back to my whole spectrum of, of euthanasia charging because what you're, what I was actually saying is, look, these clients have often been with me for years. We've been yeah. struggling to treat this condition and now it's time. And I just never want, you know, I used to always say I never wanted the footprint of dollars at the euthanasia. Like that, yeah. that always has unsettled me. But with the ability to still run your practice, we oh, all yeah, yeah. are uncomfortable with the footprint. We know that. But how can we make it better and less uncomfortable for everyone? You know, and, and, and it's more empowering. And, you know, I wonder to um, not just like the Banfields and the, and the in clinics, but wonder about the insurance companies who's out there covering um, euthanasia and right. how is that handled? I would love to hear it if you've had that experience, yeah. because. I think we can be doing better and we can be supporting our pets and preparing our clients all the way through life. Again, we, we talk about the expense of care, but do we talk about the expense of death and help them right. be prepared for that? It, yeah, it's our responsibility. I, Becky, that's a really, I, I love the way you just put that. And, and again, if you're listening today, don't, please do not misinterpret or take out of context what I'm saying about charging. That doesn't, you know, because, you know, you could easily argue, well, if euthanasia was free, everybody would do it. Again, we're saying, no, there's a lot more to that. Is it appropriate? You know, is this a person who has actually done everything that we've, we, we think they needed to do? Does it meet the standards of care or whatever? That, you know, again, I just want to be clear because I know how people twist words. Right. And part of that preparation is, again, I think of my sister who had the experience where it cost her well over a thousand dollars to have an in-home wow. hospice service come in. Granted, she had a big German shepherd and, and she was a big girl, but she wasn't prepared for that. It was very and, and, and there was nothing to be done. The 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 services at the house, they're emotionally prepared for this moment. So now she's now she's like financially devastated on top of emotionally devastated. Wow, right. And she will have resentment towards the veterinary sure. profession because yeah. she's going, you guys are the one. And, and here's the thing too, what really shocks me about that is $1,000 to put the dog down, whether or not she was prepared, that's irrelevant to this this point. How much treatment could that have gotten? You know, I mean, right. that's, that's, so if people are now starting to budget ahead and say, well, you know, when it comes time to euthanasia, I want them at home and I want this and that. Well, that's another, you know, $1,000. Well, then that just means we may be compromising the care of the living. Exactly so, right. I mean, I, you know, I really have some issues. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We know that this is a, a highly contentious, controversial, complicated topic. Uh, we just really want to share these ideas with you. And, and really, when we bring out a topic like convenience euthanasia and how much we charge for euthanasia and how we handle euthanasia, we're not doing it because we have the answers or we have this even a, an opinion necessarily. We want to catalyze conversations. So again, take this, this podcast, listen to it with your friends and colleagues, share the content, get back to us, tell us what you think about it. Because again, at the end of the day, we are here to serve you. And when these things light up our message boards and DMs and, and Facebooks or wherever, you know, we know that this is probably something we should be talking about with you. That's exactly right. So we want to hear what are your experiences with convenience euthanasia? How do you handle these situations? Send the pictures of the pets that you now own because they came in for a convenience euthanasia. We know they're out there. We want to see them. You can find us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Instagram at Vet Viewfinder, and on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. Bye. And you know, Becky, itty bitty kitty, that is how we got her, our current cat, 15 years old. Uh, worst case of coccidia, and we were, you know, this owner wound up with finding a litter of kittens like at a gas station and just couldn't afford it. Like, she was yeah. like, I'm done, you know? Right. Uh, these cats are, you know, Pooping everywhere. Pooping everywhere. And, right. and she was like, put them down. And I was like, no. So we no. found a home for the whole litter. And Itty Bitty Kitty still lives with us today. Itty Bitty Kitty. <laughs> kids, Shout out. kids name it. <laughs>